Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. There's all these pieces that kind of fit together perfectly in the way he Wait, planned so, it out. So Trisolaris really exists? Are they really out there, is what you're saying? Yeah, they're really out there. 400 years. Start hey, the countdown. Don't, uh, hey, no one broadcast this to them, please. <laughs> the, the, yeah, this, this is also, we're just part of the ETO and we're just, uh, we're just dissenting <laughs> this information. Welcome to another episode of Phantology Podcast. This is Steven, and today I have Jake and Josh on the line, and we are going to be discussing the entirety of the Three Body Problem Trilogy. The actual name of the trilogy is Remembrance of the Earth's Past, um, but really, I haven't really seen that very much. I think people mostly just refer to it as, as the Three Body Trilogy, because that's the name of the first book, which was the most successful. Jake is going to give us a pronunciation of the author's name. Um, so I was looking it up, and this is probably murdered, but I think it's Chia Xian Liu. Who knows? People who speak Mandarin know. Americans don't know. <laughs> I feel like this is a. I feel like this is a good time to put out there that none of us have really any Chinese speaking background, and so we're probably going to slaughter these names. And feel free to tweet at us or um, hit us up in the Discord with how they're actually pronounced. But we're going to do our best. Doing our best. And that's a bit of a reveal that this is a book written by a Chinese author, recently translated into English. And it's won several awards or been nominated for several awards. I mean, this is pretty, uh, pretty consistently considered the top of recent sci-fi, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it won a, a ton of awards when it was just in Chinese and immediately when it was translated into English. Um, and I know I was as soon as I started reading it, I was like, I need to find some sort of television or film adaptation of it. I know there have been a lot in Chinese, not so many. I don't think any into English yet, but I feel like it's a big deal um, for any science fiction fans in China. And I think it actually spawned a bunch of fan fiction and that ended up ultimately creating a fourth book that a, a different author wrote. It's a spinoff after the third, after the events of the third book. I haven't read that yet, but that might be interesting in the future. Yeah. So um, just a list of awards that it won. It looks like the first one um, won the Chinese science fiction uh, Yinhe award for Gal- the galaxy award in 2006. Uh, and then it, when it was translated into English, it won the Hugo award for best no- novel in 2015 and was nominated for the 2014 Nebula Award for Best Novel. So it's a pretty prestigious award there. Yeah, Hugo Award and Nebula Award, those are big deals. Yeah. So let's talk, uh, Let's no spoilers yet. We're going to get into more plot-heavy things pretty quickly. But in case you're listening and just want to know what this book is about without spoiling anything uh, for you, let's kind of, let's talk about maybe the flavor of the book, what you can expect going into reading The Three-Body Problem. Wikipedia has this classified as a hard science fiction book. Um, so it, it, I don't really, I'm not super well versed in the world of science fiction, but I think it definitely is more uh, a hard system where it tries to it kind of give at least a sort of explanation for everything it talks about and all the concepts it has in it. Yeah, it's very Asimov-esque for me. 
Um, right before reading the, the first book in this series, I finished The Gods Themselves by Isaac Asimov, and it has a very similar vibe. Um, for me, I'd say kind of a calling card of hard f- science fiction would be um, a really big focus into ideas and exploring these kind of what-if scenarios, how things would go with the less uh, less of a focus on characters themselves and character arcs. It's more how is society on the the larger scale going to react to these things that are happening. And the technology itself is really cool. It gets futuristic pretty quickly. So not technology that we currently have, but reading it, it it's believable to the point where I'm wondering why we don't have these things. Yeah, I'd say pretty much. I mean, there were a couple times in the series where certain technologies were revealed where it was kind of the edge of the uh, suspending disbelief for me, but still within that. But for the most part, all the technologies did not seem to interrupt the flow of realism that the series had. And like you said, we're more like, wait, that seems so doable. Why don't we have that right now? Let's just implement that. And I don't have much of a science background. I only took like one science class in college. So really my knowledge of physics and and chemistry and all these things is pretty much at a high school level. But it was really cool reading all of these, you're getting explanations for things like relativity and advanced scientific concepts, because he does a really great job of showing, not telling writing, where rather than just giving you a lecture on what relativity is, for example, he will show you how it works. And it makes me, someone who hasn't, isn't really up to date with science, um, understand and be able to grasp what's going on, even though some of these concepts are, are pretty far advanced. Along with that, he also does a really good job of using uh, simile and metaphor in describing some of these. In fact, that's kind of a plot point of the third book. No real spoilers here, but there's a big metaphor for trying to pass on some information, and it's really cool. And there's a bit of a, a science, or, or not a science, a fantasy flair in the first two books as well, right? There's like in the midst of this science fiction story, there is this fantasy setting that then contributes to um, to the events in the real world, in the science fiction world. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. There were some things I liked about that, some things I, I didn't. I thought it kind of took away from the, the pacing of the novel, but at the same time, when you understand what he's trying to do and what the significance of those fantasy elements are, it's really cool and it's a nice payoff. So that brings me to another thought I had about the series is that overall it almost feels more like an anthology series than a trilogy. There's a lot of different stories that the author tells and a lot of different ways that he tells those stories. And at times it can feel a little disjointed or disconnected. Um, But I really enjoyed most of the stories he was telling. I'd agree with that as well. I mean, um, there's pretty big time jumps uh, between the first and second books. Um, And the first book itself, as I read it, I I loved it um, and read it super fast, but it did kind of feel like these are more a collection of short stories or novellas that were all tied around this same idea and principle that they're kind of exploring. And so I can see why some people kind of think this is too disjointed and kind of be thrown off by that. And I guess we should let listeners know, Jake, you haven't read the third book yet, right? Yeah, I haven't. I just barely finished the second one. So we're going to drop you off when we get to the third book. But um, listeners, do not judge Jake Jake too harshly if he says something that doesn't stand (laughs) up upon reading the third book. 
I guess uh, I think one reason why maybe we feel like it was a bit disjointed. Um, one weakness of the series for me was just the characters were not all that engaging. Like I didn't have any emotional connection to hardly any of the characters because it's not that's not the point of the series, and I understand that. Um, but at the same time, I was left wishing that um, that I cared a little bit more about the the fate of the characters. Right? Like um, some of the characters don't make it but i don't really miss care because i never really felt like i was inside their heads enough i i kind of like agree disagree with that um i never thought any characters were boring at all there were definitely um a lot of characters that did not that had little or no growth or arcs with them and to me that kind of enhances the realism of the story it's not like in real life not everybody has these crazy moments where they've realized something and changed because of it. And that's like a central part of the story, but they were, they were like probably two to three characters per book that I really cared about. And I really cared about the journey they were on. Um, even though, like you said, that isn't the main focus of the story at hand. Um, I don't know. I don't know if we can, if I can say much about them in this non-spoilery part, but especially Ye Wen Ji and the first book and Luo Ji, I thought their character stories and how they progressed and how they kind of grew as characters throughout the books were, it was just amazing to me. I really connected with them. I think Luo Ji was the main character that I cared about. He's in the second book um, pr- primarily, uh, but, but he does have a, a pretty good arc, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I agree that it, do, it enhances the realism and in real life, people don't necessarily have arcs. And I feel like that, in addition to the way that he writes, kind of lends this almost haunting feel, this, this haunting voice to the novel, as if um, you're just getting a, a look at the events that are happening in almost a dispassionate way. Yeah, I agree with that. It's very, the tone, the tone of the first two books, at least, has this kind of ominous, you're not sure what's going on, and you're not sure that anything good is going to happen at the end of it. It's like you said, haunting is really good word for it. It's almost like in, in King killer when the whole time you're promised that this is not going to end well, because you see quoth in the end and it's like, you're getting the backstory and and you're understanding what's going on. But at the same time, you're like, Oh, this is just, I don't think it's going to go well. And that's how I felt reading this, this whole series. So I think it's interesting to remember the name of the actual series is Remembrance of Earth's Past. And while I don't, it's not really positioned as here's some narrator telling you the Earth's history, at sometimes, at some points, that's kind of what it feels like, like what you're saying with just kind of a dispassionate recounting of it. And I think that's what, what kind of alludes to that haunting nature. There are a wide variety of characters that will either die or drop off suddenly not in a George R. R. Martin fashion, but just where you're, you're left questioning who really is important to the story and whose ideas are really going to have an effect in the future and whose are just, you know, they tried, but it, it didn't really matter. Yeah, 100% agree. There's a bunch of characters that come in and do some stuff and then they're just gone and their, their plot line is over. They're no longer important. Okay, so any other note, overall non-spoiler things that you guys are dying to talk about or, or should we just jump into the first book? Well, I'd say if you're going to stop listening here, you should read this series if you're at all interested in modern science fiction. I think that this 
provides a great entry point. You don't really need to be super well-versed in order to appreciate this work. And I really enjoyed it. It was engaging and I thought it was well worth my time to read. Yeah, I'd say uh, the author has an amazing imagination and sense of details. And he, he rides the line between not explaining anything to the point where you need to look things up, but just explaining it well enough where you're, you, can, you can still follow along and you're not left behind. But it really inspired me to start looking up these things that it briefly talks about and explains enough for the plot. But it really piqued my interest in wanting to know more about things like what is a three-body problem? What are chaotic systems? Uh, coming from a Western society um, perspective, learning more about the Cultural Revolution in China. And even, I mean, it got me down the rabbit hole of looking up how to correctly pronounce uh, Chinese pronunciation and looking into the different systems like pinyin and stuff like that. And we'll see how well you do with that, right? <laughs> Not applied well, but we'll see. <laughs> no, I mean, like, like I 100% agree. Like I said, I basically have a high school science education, but uh, it, it piqued my interest and, and got me uh, thinking about some of these things. I feel like I'm generally smart. I don't know. Maybe you guys disagree, but uh, I... <laughs> It was cool to to get a, another view at some of these uh, interesting scientific principles that govern the universe. Yeah, unless well, you're like a huge uh, science nerd, I feel like you're going to feel a little out of your depth and spend some time on Wikipedia trying trying to feel smart again. Yeah, lots of Wikipedia. <laughs> Even in addition to the science aspects of the series, I really enjoyed the moral yeah. um, and ethics questions that are posed. And especially I enjoyed them because they were posed from a more Eastern uh, type of thinking. I feel like in Western culture, uh, we don't really, a a lot of the times, whether it's like Harry Potter or, um, you know, most things that you read, it's, you don't want to put like the good of everyone over the good of the person. Whereas that's kind of inverse, I think in this series. And even I just finished the Poppy War that's kind of brought up in that series as well. And it definitely comes at some moral and ethical questions from a different perspective. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that's probably what gripped me so so fast in the first book is, I mean, my, my knowledge of um, modern Chinese history is very limited to what, you know, the textbooks in the U.S. have for us in it. Um, and it was really interesting to get that different point of view on what, what types of morality are valued on the other side of the world and, and just understanding that. And I think the author does a really good job f- for someone coming from this Western civilization to kind of understand their perspective, even though the morals could be seeming conflicting with what we have. It was written in a way where I understood it and I you know, can sympathize with that and um, maybe even agree with it now. Yeah. I think the world needs more of that, right? Like, understanding how the other cultures are thinking so uh so hopefully this book and the poppy war and and other um other books of non-western origin that are coming out can uh, can help us do that and grow as people okay so let's do a quick uh content warning for this series overall there's nothing super graphic in it it does have especially at the beginning of the first book some uh some pretty intense violence in it would you say 
Yeah, I mean, there are characters dying, and they're dying in uh, in pretty realistic ways. So, um, that, that we're not if someone's going to die, they're they're pretty dead, and they're maybe dead with a lot of blood. Yeah, and uh, I would say it's more brutal than what you get in a lot of like fantasy. Just the way that it uh, is framed is kind of more realistic and brutal. It's not just like oh, somebody got a coin shot through them and missed. Somebody got their head. Right. I mean, not to say that there's a ton of violence, but when it happens, it's there. Yeah, exactly. It's more, and that's what made it a little bit more shocking is that it's not like someone's dying on every page. It's like uh, they kind of die either unexpectedly or by, I don't know. I don't want to spoil things, but yeah, yeah. No, no, you're good. Um, and then as far as other types of content, um, there's not hardly any like uh, sexual content. And then there's some swearing. I, th- I think there's maybe like a, what, five? or less F words a book, like just every now and then there's a character with a foul mouth. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't remember there being a lot of language in it. So I think you're, you're safe. Uh, the only other content is that it does deal with like some pretty, um, pretty intense moral and ethical uh, quandaries. Which are things that you should be, considering right to grow as a person so yeah but I, I just don't know if you're scared of that hopefully you're not scared okay. of that come on snowflakes well well i just don't know if you would want to give this to like a 10 year old to read because they might like get this nihilistic view of the world yeah i attend there's no way a 10 year old's gonna understand well, well i remember reading point. speaker for the dead when i was uh 11 and it shook me and it was hard for me to read and I feel like it made me kind of into a pessimist for a little while. So just maybe this is definitely uh, not an adult series in terms of the content, but just in terms of um, the questions that I'd ask the readers to consider. It yeah, might yeah, be yeah. more well suited for adults. Listeners, if you can't tell Josh is a parent, he's very cognizant of, of giving books to children. So I think like every single one he mentions how a 10 year old would receive yeah. it. Well, well, no, I, I also have a 10 year old nephew. So I kind of always uh, think in my head, actually he's 12 now. I was just kind of thinking in my head, would I recommend this book to him? If I did, what warnings would I want to get? Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Let's start. Uh, let's jump into spoilers. So if you haven't read the books, drop off now. I'm going to give a quick recap of the three body problem book one. The story begins in the midst of the cultural revolution in China. Ye Wenjie, our somewhat protagonist, sees her father, who's a scientist, killed and becomes disillusioned with humanity. She is a scientist in her own right and gets caught up in a mysterious satellite base called Red Coast. During her time there, she makes contact with an alien species and invites them to come to Earth to settle its problems. Present day. Scientists are committing suicide. Established scientific principles are no longer true. Wang Miao, a nanotechnology professor, is asked to investigate. He becomes embroiled in a virtual reality video game called Three Body. In the game, the world is unstable due to its rotation around three different stars. In this way, we are introduced to the civilization known as Trisolaris. These are the aliens that Ye Wenjie contacted. Dissatisfied with the chaos of their world, they are coming to Earth in 400 years now with the intent to colonize a more our more uh, habitable world. Their technology is more advanced, so much so that they have sent devices called SOPONs to Earth to stop our technology and scientific progress. Also, they have established an Earth Trisolarist Organization, ETO, of disillusioned humans to advance their interests. The book ends with a message from Trisolarist to Earth. 
you are insects. Uh, so that's how the book ends on that ominous tone. And Trisolaris is coming to Earth to take over, right? Okay, so there's our summary. Uh, what were some of the highlights from that that you guys really enjoyed and are, and are worth talking about? Okay, I think that the whole Sophon idea and plot device was, that was just mind-blowing for me when they, when he detailed out unfolding uh, the proton to the, I don't I I guess it was to like the, the so higher like a, and lower dimensions. Yeah, it went from to, 11, 11 dimensions down to two dimensions. Yeah, so it unfolded out to the 11th dimension, or no, yeah, it unfolded from the 11th to the second dimension yeah. to create something that is huge so they can make, uh, turn it into a computer and then shrink it back down to the size of a proton. That was, to me, that was one of those parts where it was like, almost outside the um, suspension of disbelief, but just enough in there to where I was like, oh yeah, I'll buy that. That's amazing. Yeah, you have to believe that like interdimensionality uh, transactions are allowed. He really likes that idea. Yeah, he does. That was really cool. I really enjoyed how they basically completely handicapped humanity in one fell swoop and just sent that over and then just completely demolished any hope that humanity had at catching up uh, scientifically and becoming a threat to them in 400 years. Yeah, that was, I wonder if that was an idea he had all along or if he kind of found himself in this hole where scientifically it's going to take 400 years for them to get there. I mean, is that's enough time for huge advances to happen. So I wonder if he was planning that or if it was more, this needs to happen for the story to actually happen. So he invented a way to handicap well, I, it. I mean, he could have said fewer than 400 years, right? So I, yeah, but that, out of that hole. then that, um, then that would mean the Trisolarians had more advanced technology to travel faster than I think it says. Well, they were going or like, just position their solar system closer to ours. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's based on a real solar system, though. Oh, is, oh yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. There's all these pieces that kind of fit together perfectly in the way he Wait, planned so, it out. So, Trisolaris really exists? Are They're really out there, is what you're saying? Yeah, they're really out there. 400 years. Start hey, the countdown. Don't, uh, hey, no one broadcast this to them, please. <laughs> the, the, yeah, this, this is also, we're just part of the ETO, and we're just, uh, we're just dissenting <laughs> misinformation to, to humanity right now. Yeah. Yeah, have, um, you guys, speaking, have you guys started playing the, the video game? Are you into the VR three-body three body problem? They, have they made one? That is like That seems like a goldmine to do something like that where it's this puzzle of a video game and it's all VR because I feel like VR is getting big right now. Yeah, sounds like one. The, the video game part, I think, was my favorite. I really liked how they used real uh, Earth scientists. Like they had Newton and Copernicus and other really notable scientists as characters in the game. So it was like this fantasy setting that we kind of touched on in the non-spoiler review. Um, mm -hmm. But it was also related to the real world but, and what was going on. But you didn't really know how, and how it was related until later on. And it was slowly revealed. But the game itself was just kind of cool, the way the, the system worked. Yeah, I love the brutality of it when, um, when Wong first logs in and just like pretty much immediately he's he's still confused and disoriented and then dies and no idea why and then the subsequent uh trials in there trying to figure out why he was dying and survive longer i thought that was really cool 
what did you guys think about the ETO? Did I remember we talked a little bit as we were reading it about it about how no humans would ever turn it against each other like that? And but I, I'd say I, I really liked it. I thought it was pretty accurate. Um, I don't think a large population of humans would turn against humanity, but I mean, right now, even now with the the climate troubles that we're facing there are groups of people who are pro pro extinction of humanity in order to save the planet. I mean, it's a very small percentage. Right. Isn't there, didn't you link us to some Wikipedia page? Like if you want to join the <laughs> extinction movement, you can. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot. Is that, that's what it was called. I forgot what it was called. It's um, let me try to find that extinction movement. It's like, we're going to no longer have children and just the earth is going to be yeah. inhabited in a hundred years. The voluntary human extinction movement. Yeah, it's basically like, no, it's not like a, a suicidal movement, but it's a no more procreation. You know, we've done enough. We're done. Time for us to phase out. So, I mean, I guess there are people who would join the ETO if it was an option. And and even, if, I don't know, apart from that, I, I feel like uh, Ye Wen Ji's storyline, to me, it lines up. I think he did a really good job of making her desires and worldview fit the the whole ETO purpose, the way that she had just been so suffered so much from an oppressive society at the time. And then I think it really, this is kind of off topic from what you're saying, but it ties in when she was able to try to get revenge against those three students who helped murder her father and then realized that they too had just been, victims of the system as well and it just kind of gave her this nihilistic viewpoint of like it doesn't matter where you are what side you're on the whole system of humanity is screwed so it just needs to start over and within the eto there were like the adventists and the escape there's there's another group yeah, the ad- like one of them wanted to say hey trisolaris come here and like and make us better but don't necessarily destroy humanity yeah just the survivalist yeah did you guys yeah. know? Did you guys know much about the Chinese Cultural Revolution before reading this book? Because honestly, I knew it was a thing, but I did not realize how extreme it was. I had never heard the name before. I knew something like that happened, but I figured it all just happened during the um, communist revolution. I didn't realize there was another revolution after um, the People's Republic of China had formed. That was one of the biggest Wikipedia moments for me. I mean, you hear that that Mao killed the, this obscene number of people, and honestly, I just I never really knew um, how it worked, and I and I still don't know my, very much about Chinese history. But just reading this book, I think, was really valuable for me um, to be able to to appreciate, not appreciate, but but understand um, what what happened, one of the, one of these terrible events that happened in the world. Yeah, and I think it was a good decision on his part to. Well, I don't, and again, I don't know if this was intentional, but as a foreigner reading a Chinese book, it helped me um, get in and understand the culture better from the get-go um, by starting with the Cultural Revolution as the beginning to his story. Yeah, it really is a, a good backdrop there, and it kind of sets the stage for some of these themes that he tries to set up throughout the rest of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Okay, anything else on, on Three Body, or should we jump into Book Two, Dark Forest? Um, I had a couple of things I wanted to, uh, to ask about. Um, you guys 
just brought up the morality of the ETO, but what about um, the whole idea of escapism and how in the book, the world governments decide unilaterally any thought of escapism is treacherous. It's just a form of defeatism. Do you think, like, do you think that was sound reasoning? And if so, or if not, do you think the world governments today would react in the same way or would there be a bigger focus on um, the escapism movement? So I think that's where it comes to kind of a different uh, morality view, um, an Eastern morality view versus a Western morality is I feel like that might check more with Eastern ideologies of like, um, we're going to not allow uh, individual success to like defeat an entire country or entire population. Yeah. But the Western view isn't necessarily like, you know, every man for yourself, go escape the, the impending doom. Like we're, there's still a notion of the, the state and, and humanity in general that we would want to protect. Yeah. And I mean, the way the book frames it, uh, it seems to be the, the real reason why it, it never took off is because society couldn't decide who would get to go and who would have to leave. Like if there was a for sure success story in a different, on a different planet, like we could send a million people there deciding who would go that they touched on that in the book. Like that was a big um, problem for them to solve is figuring out, should it be the rich? Should it be the smart? Should it be the working class? Like how do you determine who gets to be the seed? And the ETO talking to Trisolaris basically said, don't even worry about that. So Earth's not going to be able to de- make that decision on their own. So that the whole idea is just going to fall apart. Yeah. I feel like if that were to actually happen, then again, like a Western mindset would just be, well, whoever has the means to do it is going to do yeah. it. Yeah. I feel like that'd be, I just can't imagine where we just put all your eggs in one basket. I feel like there had to be a more, um, in today's world, we'd have a more pragmatic pragmatic approach of, yes, we need to focus on defense, but also plan B, you know, but. So the Western view is just capitalism Buy your, you know, whoever can <laughs> escape, go ahead and buy your escape ticket and, and get the heck out of here and, and you survive because the strong survive. That, I mean, that's what it seems like it'd be, but that's an interesting thought because what would their capital even be worth? at that point, you know, like, yeah, you can pay millions of dollars to escape, but for the people who can't escape, why would they accept millions of dollars in a time of well, crisis? That's that's not the, really the way that things work though. Like, you know, I know, I know that that's just a philosophical. Yeah. I mean, in terms of right now, you know, you have a lot of the world's poor are living in uh, terrible conditions where they're basically dying. It's not like they're accepting payment for the rich to go live lives of luxury, you know? Yeah. I, I bought it. A lot of these um, philosophical discussions, especially like with escapism, I I at first pushed back about it. And then the more I thought about it, the more logical it seemed and how that could actually happen or something like it. I don't know if that exact thing would happen, but I, I liked how he picked a philosophy that would prevail and went with whether if that's the one that would actually prevail, I feel like there would be some um, prevailing philosophy that might be a little bit illogical, but people would fall in line and support it. And I yeah, think he does a good job of, of linking Eastern and Western ideologies together when he chooses these philosophies. Like there's ideas from both. And you even see that like in, in the language that develops later on. It's, it's a 
compilation of Chinese and English characters. So, um, he, yeah, he, he does a really good job of, of considering both sides and, and, and really tying it in. And we've, we've said that he, uh, he touches on a lot of more Eastern things, but I think he also, I mean, there aren't, it's not like all the characters are, are Chinese and there are, um, especially in the second book, there are some characters who develop very Western ideas that fail spectacularly. Yeah. So wrapping up this book, I feel like um, you should, if you're at all interested, you should for sure give this book a shot. It's not very long. How long is it? A few, like 300, 400 pages? I think it's 400. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So it's not super long, especially if you're used to reading books. Yeah, this is your pretty classical, pretty classic uh, trilogy thing that happens where the first book is like 400 pages and then they just grow by 100 pages or so each time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think that if you read the first book, you'll have an idea of what the rest of the series is like. Yeah, Um, the writing, I feel like his writing is superb. And um, as we end out the review of this part i just love the ending uh where uh the sofans say you are insects kind of that ominous threat and i love the analogy that uh the character dashi follows that up with by saying by looking at the the locusts in the field and just saying like we may be insects but we've been humans have been trying to kill insects for thousands of years with pesticide and and yet here they are persisting and just that kind of ominous yet hopeful note that okay we may be bugs but bugs survive and then how that ties into the first chapter of the dark forest from the viewpoint of the ant i just i love that Mm, symmetry there i hadn't thought about that yeah that's a good time i I also really like how uh and this is maybe a little bit of a spoiler for other books but how we are kind of codependent with insects here on earth as well. Like they're annoying and we might think that they're taking, that they're trying to take over or take what's ours or whatever. But like in reality, if we took away all the mosquitoes and locusts and um, flies of the world, then there would, you know, everything would kind of fail and fall apart. It's all part of a ecosystem. Yeah. One other thing, Jake, so you said the, the writing was superb. I just want to mention, I, I think that's just amazing because it's written in Chinese and, translated over how do they do that i i feel like i I need to listen to some kind of podcast about translation or or just look it up but there's no way that all of the you know the the beauty in the writing can translate from language to language so i think that's just amazing yeah i same i i was just astounded by that i assume his writing in the native chinese is amazing as well but just the daunting task of being the translator and understanding the work of art it is already in its natural state and having to transfer that to reach a new audience. And I don't know, that'd be a, a ton of weight on your shoulders to do that. And I, I feel like the original author and the translator just nailed it. I also saw on Reddit that a lot of the Chinese names are puns. So in oh, really? Chinese, like Luoji, I think means logic. And as we get into the second book, that makes a little more sense. And oh. Cheng uh, Jin, who is the the main character of the third book, her name is more uh, about like love or something, which which is kind of her theme. So there's some uh, some play on words and some things that are going on. I think it, yeah, if I was if I could read Chinese, I think I might even have more of an appreciation for the writing. That's cool. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, Dragon Ball Z. Pretty much all their names are food related puns but because it's an 
like a Japanese version of English transliterated into English. It kind of like loses its, its meaning along the way. And so we have these cool names like Vegeta and Kakarot that just mean vegetable and carrot. But <laughs> um, but going along, with, you know, yeah, going along with the the translation, um, I've only been able to read one book in its original and a translated. I read The Name of the Wind in English and then listened to it in Spanish. And same thing where Name of the Wind, I think, is one of the best written fantasy books ever. Just the prose is amazing. And the Spanish, the translation, and I'm no like expert in Spanish literature at all. But just the way it was, it was translated was also amazing. That'd be really interesting. I, because he even, Rothfuss, like makes up some words and, and some phrases that don't really mean anything in English even. But yeah. uh, so like in the very beginning of the book, he describes the sound as a cut flower sound, I remember. And that doesn't mean anything in English, but you can still get an idea of what it means. So yeah translating stuff like that just seems so daunting and if you're worried that you're not going to be able to understand a lot because it's translated there are there are plenty of footnotes at the end to um to help explain the connotations of things and people you may not be familiar with and ideas that you may not be familiar with so don't feel like it's a daunting task to start the book ah that would be an advantage of reading i I think I read most of the first book, but then I listened to the second two and I forgot about the footnotes. It would be nice if audiobooks included footnotes, you know, just kind of like take a break in the way that the author, the reader is reading it. And it's yeah. like, oh, this means blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I read, uh, there's one audiobook I listened to that did that. Uh, the YA series, uh, the Bartimaeus Trilogy. Those books are full of footnotes and they're more they're done in a more humorous way. And the the audiobook would pause after each word that had a footnote and then kind of do like a side voice and explain it. But I couldn't listen to these books um mainly because of the the all the names of the people listening to them. I was not able to distinguish who is who. I had to read it in order to um comprehend it better. Yeah, that that's that's fair. I mean, I was able to do okay listening, but I think this one, especially, you might do better reading. Okay, let's let's oh. jump to or Josh. Did you have one more thing before we jump? To no, the- I was just gonna say let's jump into the next book. Okay, I just want to note, Jake, that I read the first part of Mayus Trilogy book, by the way. So <laughs> we had a we had a wager back in the day. Yeah, you haven't finished your wager though. <laughs> I read one. You gotta read the next. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get to it. It's on the schedule. Okay, Dark Forest, book two. <laughs> Humanity establishes a wall facer program to combat Trisolaris. Because their Sophons are able to gather almost unlimited intelligence against Earth, the only strategy to employ against the invaders is one devised entirely in the safety of the human mind. So to this end, the wall facer program is created. Wall facers are given almost unlimited resources to execute whatever plans they come up with. Four wall facers are chosen throughout humanity. Three of them fail with their plans spectacularly, and we can talk about that later. But the fourth, who is the Walji, who we've talked about before, discovers the dirty secret of the universe, that it is a dark forest where every civilization is a hunter that will employ deadly force against any other civilization that is dumb enough to make itself known. Walji is able to set up a mutual, uh, uh, mutually assured destruction deterrence system against Trisolaris, 
and the two civilizations agree to an uneasy peace and sharing of technology as the book ends. Also, uh, during this book, a couple centuries past, technology advances by leaps and bounds, and our, uh, our cool solar system fleet that we build is just destroyed spectacularly in a doomsday battle. Um, so that's a, that's a high-level summary. We can talk about more of the, the points of the book. But uh, what are some things from this book that you guys really enjoyed? I personally loved how egotistical humanity was. You know, they, they start off by, uh, by feeling kind of defeated, but still making escapism like illegal. And they're like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to come up with the solution. We're going to advance and we're going to try and delude ourselves into believing that we're going to actually be able to conquer these people. And because we were able to develop faster travel or whatever than they had or than what we thought they had, then we're like, oh, we're, we're superior. And I just thought that that was such a common thread throughout all of humanity, whatever culture you're in, humanity and people think like are very egotistical, they think that they're the best. I love that that's the direction that I went. Yes, yeah, so like three-fourths of the way through the book after following Luwalji's narrative for a while, he goes into hibernation. Hibernation is a technology now, just um, accept it. So he goes into hibernation and he wakes up. Um, I can't remember how much longer. I want to say like a couple centuries. And he wakes up and he's confused because everyone's like, oh yeah, we've got the, you know, Tri-Solaris. We'll, we'll handle them. They're coming, but we've got this space, uh, we've, we've got the space fleet now and they can, they have cool weapons. So yeah, yeah, Tri-Solaris, not a problem any longer. And we're like, as readers, we're wondering what in the world because up until this point, it's always been, what are we going to do? Because Trisolaris is coming and our wall facers have failed. And all we've got is this weird thing that Luwalji did and, and no one really knows what it is. But then he wakes up and it's not a problem anymore. And I, I love what you said there, Josh, because I think that's totally what humanity would do, sadly. Yeah, it's just that, that blatant overconfidence. And I think, I think that's like one of humanity's greatest strengths and greatest weaknesses. Just the strength in the sense of that, like just pure grit and, you know, this is a, a hard situation, but we're good enough to overcome it. But then greatest weakness and being so arrogant that their fleet was able to just be torn to shreds by it. Yeah. And, and you, like you said, it was a strength because we were able, they were able to enter, what do they call it, Like the golden age or. Yeah. That like they utopia. Were, yeah, they were able to develop this utopia because they all came together and developed these technologies and everybody kind of started working together and they created the best civilization that the Earth had ever seen, built upon a lie and built, well, I guess maybe not a lie, but uh, just complete overconfidence and delusion. But that's we're, what was needed to develop this, this, uh, this utopia. Worth mm-hmm. noting though, I mean, to get to that point, they had to go through the great ravine they call yeah. it basically they destroyed the surface of the earth and killed off a vast majority of the population so population is much smaller now they've got this utopian society but at a pretty high cost well right but you'd think that um i i thought that that was really believable and if they wouldn't have developed this overconfidence then they would have stayed in the great ravine kind of until they just came and got annihilated by the trisolarians yeah it's right. like a balancing point of how much is too much? And I mean, with like, if they hadn't realized all the damage they were doing that caused a great ravine, then there wouldn't be a utopia because everything would have been ruined. But they went just far enough to where they're able to continue forward without 
overly permanent damage. So I touched on two plot points that I think we should talk about more. Uh, one was the other wall facers. Let's go through what their uh, what their plans were and kind of what we think how how that reflects on society. Um, before we dive into what they did, I just wanted to say that I really liked the different perspectives they had. Um, one was one from Venezuela, Luoji's from China. Um, there's an American, and I don't know if the other one was from the UK, but spent most of his time in Japan. I could be confusing the two no, English I think you're speakers. Right. I think you're right. Um, but I, I just thought that was cool, trying to get like the broad spectrum of different worldviews on Earth. I think that's one of the greatest strengths to diversity is having different points of view and the way you see and interact with the world, which would be necessary when you're trying to solve this huge crisis. But it just made me think, how would you really pick someone? Like, what criteria would you look for into picking a, a wall facer? And I think diversity and thought would be top of the list there. Yeah, and you can kind of, it, you can see almost what the author thinks of these different uh, different ideologies in the way that their plans are formulated, right? So the, the Venezuelan guy, Ray Diaz, his plan is blow up mercury and uh well well it's a deterrence plan so he's got bombs set mm-hmm. up to blow up mercury and send it into the sun and destroy the whole solar system and he's going to say look trisolaris unless you cooperate we're taking ourselves out pretty uh pretty drastic action that i don't know maybe reflects some of the uh uh drastic things that uh some of the extreme south american governments have done i i think his plan wasn't even deterrence i think it was if we lose the doomsday battle, just do that. I thought that was the distinction between his and Luo Ji, whereas Luo Ji at the end was like, this is the last thing we have, whereas Ray Diaz was just more of a spiteful, you're not getting the earth. I could be remembering that wrong. But but yeah, that's just the, I mean, it kind of goes with his character. We talked about how the characters aren't super, they don't have a lot of growth, but I feel like all the details in them, there are a lot of details in the character. Like Ray Diaz was, kind of annoyed with the rest of the world leaders because they didn't take him as seriously as he wanted to. And I feel like his plan was kind of a a reaction to that part of his character. Yeah. I mean, he basically, he basically ticked off the whole world with, yeah. <laughs> they, they ended up just stoning him at the end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He went back to Venezuela and his own people stoned him. So then our, uh, one of the other guys was Frederick Tyler um, his plan was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but he was he had these drones that were going to be militarized, and his plan was like a to to trick Trisolaris. He was going to take them water because part of the Trisolarian society was um, they needed water to rehydrate their bodies. So they're aliens, obviously not not humanoid, but they're able to dehydrate and rehydrate their organs. So they need water. So he's going to take them this water and then the drones, um, once under their control, he was going to uh, take back control and basically make them kamikazes. Um, Did I miss some details? Yeah, basically just, he was basically just going to nuke the fleet with hydrogen bombs. So he was going to destroy the human fleet first to gain the trust of the Trisolarians. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot he was going to destroy the humans. That was the problem with his plan. Yeah, his was a very much kind of that idea of, do like kind of that sacrifice of 
not many humans will survive. They're going to take a lot of damage, but not enough to completely wipe them out kind of thing. Kind of seemed like it would have worked if it wasn't discovered by his wall breaker, right? Yeah, I, I felt like that idea had had validity to it. Um, well, not, not once we know what the fleet was made out of. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Which, yeah. which is what his wall breaker came and told him, right? That it wouldn't even scratch yeah, the, the surface of the fleet. And, and yeah. so... He's so just, maybe more more arrogance there, more Western arrogance. Yeah, I mean, come on, if you're gonna come up with a archetype of a Western warmonger, somebody that just kamikazes with a nuke, that's kind of what you would come up with, right? Yeah. But honestly, like when you were reading the book, did you what ideas did you guys come up with for thinking a way to deter them? You know, like all of them, all of them in the beginning of mine were just rooted in like our biggest firepower. Will that make a dent in them? If so, use that. If not can we make a bigger bomb, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I really liked all of these solutions that the wall facers came up with. I thought that they were all really interesting and reflect mm-hmm. different things that humanity would come up with. The last one was a little different. It was the this mental sill thing. So um, this guy, Bill Hines, wanted to map the entirety of the human mind and then like unleash our untapped potential to advance technology. And in the process, he was able to figure out a way to implant an idea in in someone's mind that they believed absolutely so he used that to uh to prevent escapism right i think there might have been a little more to that too well go ahead josh well it was both right it was first to try and boost humanity's intelligence to come up with a way to defeat them so he figured he didn't know but if he could um map that like the human brain and try and get people to become intelligent enough that somebody would come up with it and the secondary plan was to then install defeatism and have people find a way to escape the solar yeah and i liked how it was veiled under the disguise of this sort of propaganda-ish um morale inducing seal when really he was secretly installing instilling defeatism in people so what do you think would you do that if if you uh had a belief that the world would be destroyed in future generations, would you opt to get a seal on your brain that kind of prevented you from thinking that way? I don't like the idea of the, like losing a part of your free will in it, but I understand the the value in it for sure. Like being able to um, just prevent somebody from even thinking, like say someone is uh, has some mental health issues and is suicidal, being able to erase the possibility of them thinking about being suicidal like that have huge benefits to society in general i think but also you kind of lose your own bit of freedom there yeah what if you could just make everyone happy would that work yeah yeah just instill in everyone seal you are happy it's kind of like a big brother situation in a more positive way (laughs) kind of dang kind of reminds oh this is like major spoilers so i can't say but kind of reminds me like end of wheel of time you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it definitely reminds me of that. It also reminds me of uh Age of Legends Wheel of Time, how they would use the the oath rod or the binder. Um, which I don't know if can I say what that is? Is that spoilers for Age yeah, of let's Legends? Try and, yeah, let's try and stay away from spoilers. All right. Even though it's not really a main series. But but yeah. Yeah. That and that's something I really appreciate about the series is that it takes it just finds ways to pull in these really interesting um thought experiments. In, yeah, in ways that are kind of tangential to the plot. 
but still work really well and still make you just, you know, as you're reading it, you just start thinking about how yeah. you would react or if this is moral or ethical or what you would do in this situation. I feel like this book was like a, what that Frederick, was it Frederick or, or whoever came up with the mapping the human brain? Oh, that was Bill uh, Hines. Bill Hines. The whole book was like a Bill Hines mind map thing and it just expanded my brain to be able to like think about things, these things more. Like the, uh, that Bradley Cooper movie that no one watched with the pill. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Except I didn't get, I didn't get super smart. I just, I was like, Oh, these are thoughts I never even thought I could think (laughs) to be honest. I mean, I've never been high, but these books would probably be good ones to read while high. You'd have some pretty good deep thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We cannot recommend being high while reading the books. But, if but we do not it, not recommend it. We cannot not recommend it. <laughs> We're not Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, that kind so, okay. of goes. I think we've got to talk about the Doomsday Battle, right? Yeah. Yeah. I. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> so we we talked about how arrogant humanity was going into it, right? But that moment where the droplet just destroy absolutely destroys the fleet right it's speeding around it's made out of this impenetrable material just wrecking through all the ships um humanity is totally hopeless what were you guys thinking i that part that whole sequence with the droplet i thought was just so well done it felt like i was literally watching a movie it was like a scene in a movie where something's being unveiled and everyone's on edge and you know something's going to go wrong, but you just don't know how it's going to go wrong yet. Like you don't know what bad thing's going to happen, but you know something bad is going to happen. It's kind of like the first time watching Alien and they're all at that dinner table right before the chest burster pops out and he starts getting sick. You're like, wait, I know something's wrong, but I don't know what's going to happen kind of thing. Yeah. I imagine it like there's really dramatic music building up to the point where they're investigating the droplet. And then all of a sudden it, it explodes out, starts destroying ships. And then there's like a, a wide cut with no sound because you're in Yeah, space. just silent. Yeah. And you see all the ships getting decimated. Yeah. Ooh. Kind of like Ryan Johnson in Star Wars. Just the cuts no sound. And then the <laughs> ship. During the light speed thing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but the light speed thing was awful. That was, there's so many problems with that. <laughs> that also makes me think of the Lego movie with Charlie Day just saying, Spaceship! <laughs> Spaceship! I mean, can I just say, if the light speed travel was possible, why are there not militarized drones that just shoot through light speed and just, just like ramming it? ships? It yeah. doesn't work. I don't. I, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the wheel of time. Why didn't they just start using gateways to completely decimate armies before? Sorry, sorry, more know. more spoilers for. They didn't, they didn't know about it. Sanders. <laughs> I mean, come on, it, it's kind of the same thing though, but. Yeah, you just have to apply the, a certain technology to a new thought that happens. Anyways. So, anyway, yeah, I, I, it, it was kind of like you were just watching a news broadcast of like... Yeah, oh man. Something, like you knew it was going to happen. He didn't try and really uh, convince you otherwise. You know, it was kind of the whole thing was being foreshadowed. And it was just like waiting for the inevitable to happen. Yeah, and that juxtaposition of that unwittingly arrogant utopia society and then just the utter devastation that, like they, they they didn't have a coping mechanism to even understand what was going on exactly yeah can i make an artemis fowl reference you can this, 
this reminds me of Artemis Fowl when, <laughs> when the young fairies are break down in tears when their cell phones no longer work because because they don't understand what's what's happening. So if you get that reference, tweet at us. <laughs> I've read I've read a few of those books, but I have no idea what you're talking about. That's a deep cut, Stephen. That's a way deep cut. <laughs> those books are fantastic. They were not fantastic. Like times in my childhood. No, one out of ten stars the whole series. Oh my gosh! No, it's such a good high school. Okay, I, no. I remember being scarred when when he cut off the person's thumb and used it. To get, that was oh bad. yeah. You're talking about book three, Artemis Fall, the Eternity Code. I, I guess I am. I don't know. Um, I, <laughs> slight slight uh sidestep from the conversation again but my <laughs> my whole viewpoint of that series is so jaded because in seventh grade we had to do like a book report and i was doing it on the shadow rising and i was so excited to talk about how cool wheel of time is and the kid before <laughs> me presents some artisans found like a book on fairies what are you talking about like this is so dumb hey come on there's <laughs> mythical creatures in wheel of time i know it was such a such a, a stuck up uh what's the word i'm looking for like so pot like my my views on reading back then were so stuck up so this is jake's first time on the podcast but we're excited to have him back more he's going to be our, our wheel of time expert our our guru enablist or anything like that okay well i mean we always try and convince jake to read other stuff and he is good at reading other stuff but especially as we've been starting this pod we were like jake read this read this read this and he we're like has jake just stopped reading and then he tells us he's on book like 13 of the wheel of time to to be fair i'm the one who found this series and suggested it to you guys i know and then i read it this summer and i was excited to talk to you about (laughs) it and then both finished it before you i like i said i read the first book in like a day and a half and then work got busy and i couldn't listen to it and that's how i usually read books now at work because i just listen to them but i couldn't do it with this all right well we'll we'll forgive you all right so in the future jake is going to be our our wheel of time maester so to say um we're going to start doing a wheel of time series in preparation for the tv show which we're pumped about um but but that'll come in the um getting back to this so we just talked about the the devastation of the droplet um kind of the result of that is we already had zhang's fleet escape and he's trying to make his way following his uh his own self-instilled defeatism not from the mental seal but just his own but then also there there are two or three ships who escape the fleet's destruction of the droplet right and they make their way towards other planets am i am i right in that i think there's like five ships that initially escape but yeah what what happens with them because this is good yeah this was probably i I don't know there's so many parts in these the series where i'm like this was probably one of my favorite parts and there's like 30 of them but um, we kind of get a mini, a mini representation of the dark forest philosophy where we have these groups of ships going off to their destination, but they realize that their probability of survival would be much higher if they were able to have less personnel and more um, material, i.e. killing off the members of another ship and harvesting uh, their their supplies and stuff and so i mean the dark force ideology in general is kind of just game theory right at a cosmic scale and so you have this kind of prisoner's dilemma of who's gonna attack who first um and you have uh basically everyone everyone gets attacked and 
one ship from each each group survives and is able to harvest the rest from the others and humanity is just appalled at the decision that happens yeah well it's interesting because it's not quite um a prisoner's dilemma because in the prisoner's dilemma everybody could come off better you know like if nobody oh, killed yeah each that's other. true so it's that's more true. of a zero-sum game theory type situation where they they will be better off if they destroy the yeah. other ship and so it's it's uh it's interesting because again that's how uh, dark forest kind of philosophy of we need to destroy the civilization before they can become advanced enough to destroy us and it's kind of a zero-sum situation um yeah and I, this again kind of highlights the difference in um, moral thinking in different cultures. The, I mean, from our culture, I feel like we kind of have that Captain America mindset of, like, I don't remember what he says in it in uh, uh, Infinity War, but basically, like, the no man left behind. We're going to try to make this with everybody. We're not going to have someone sacrifice themselves just to better us. And in that situation, there was a possible chance of them making it without anybody dying but just the odds were so much better if they were able to attack someone else and kind of the opposite of that mindset is sacrifices must be made for the betterment of society right and in that situation some people need to die to guarantee the survival of the collective as a whole so what do you think would really happen in that situation would it would it be how it played out because the way it played out was basically whichever ship realized what was going on first was the one that made the first attack and was ultimately successful. So if we had two ships and one was Eastern philosophy and one was Western philosophy, would the Western one just try to make it on their own and then get destroyed by the Eastern one? Because the Eastern one would say, Oh, uh, we need you to survive. Well, I mean, those are like the philosophy in their realms, but I don't think that's how people in each society kind of act in general. Cause you'd also get the whole, like the scare dilemma of are they going to attack us? Well, if they're going to attack us, like we should attack them preemptively, which you see a lot in <laughs> Western society, unfortunately. But All right. Well, yeah, I, I thought that the ending was super good. It was a great analogy for the dark forest uh, philosophy in general. And mm-hmm. I thought it, it was a great little microcosm or case study of what we were going to be facing going forward in the series. And again, the writing was done so well that like me personally, I would be like, no, we should just try, you know, we're in this together. Let's try to make it. But it was written in a way that after they did attack each other and those ships were better off at the end of it, I I thought, you know, that maybe that was the right decision for humanity as a whole. Like, I totally understand that. I wasn't appalled at the mass murder that was committed. I was kind of in agreement with it okay any other final final notes final cuts here on on death's end or should we should we kick you off jake and and josh and i will finish up um there's there's a couple other things i wanted to talk about first of all how did you guys feel about um not luoji's wife but the idea of his wife before he found his wife how did that sit with you guys i didn't like it I, i thought that part was weird i honestly like almost sexist in the way that it was portrayed, I, I, I didn't love the whole uh, dream girl fantasy thing that he had going on. It, maybe I missed the point. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see the, the sexist thing, but now that you say that, I, I can definitely see how that would come off that way. Like her character had no character. She was basically a Barbie doll. Are you, t- are you talking about the idea, right? 
I'm talking those... about like the the woman that they find that is the idea. Oh, I just meant the idea in general, but I didn't feel that about the his his actual wife. But what did you think, Josh? Well, I think that goes back to, in general, the characters in this book are not that great. It's not not that great, but they're not the highlight of the series. Mm-hmm. And so I think just having a lack of character development in his wife wasn't really that surprising. Well, honestly, Luwaji was a great character. I thought he was yeah. the best character in the whole series. He, he was, but he is his a great wife character. Was, but but his wife yeah yeah his wife wasn't she she was what like her role needed her to be and that's about it exactly yeah and i feel like that's what he did with all the characters in this book is to develop them out as much as he needed to and with the role that his wife played i feel like it was so crucial for luo g's character in general finding her i mean apart from this like mind girlfriend wife he had before he met her um but just how he's kind of like this fish out of water character who doesn't really understand his own self-worth or even purpose in life and then i feel like after marrying her and having a child that's when he really starts to to get things you know and that's when he likes yeah Yeah. like starts to be able to become a true wall facer um but uh that kind of takes him out of his hedonistic living and he he has a purpose but the the whole idea where so the mind girlfriend thing is he was dating this author who wrote romance novels and he thought they were all just kind of like kind of like similar to what we're saying about his characters or just like you write these books about these characters that are just one dimensional because they're just kind of these if i remember right he considered them just like steamy romance romance novels that were like the characters themselves weren't worth much. And then the girlfriend says, you should try to just create a character in your mind and then see how, see how like worthless they are. And basically he creates this person in his mind of this woman and he starts to have like mental hangouts with her and her in his weird. mind, just like conversations, just like, it was like this little character that like imaginary friend who, but like was a fully fledged person in his mind. Um, so I said there was like a fantasy element of each book and that was the fantasy element of this one um, yeah. in, in my interpretation. But I felt like in the other two books, the fantasy elements ended up contributing to the plot much more than this one. I, I didn't see the point of this one quite as much. I, yeah, I think it, like the point was just connecting to him finding his wife, which the connection there is kind of far-fetched. I think of it more as like a meta look into writing in general, kind of like this breaking the fourth wall of Jishian uh, Liu kind of discussing writing in general when you create a character. Um, I don't know. It kind of provokes the question, can you really, for as- aspiring writers and current authors out there, can you really create a character so well that you could have like an ongoing like friendship slash relationship with, you know? I don't know. That's the way I saw it. But it did kind of, like, compared to, like, I haven't read Death's End, but compared to the fantasy portion in Three-Body Problem, this one was much more kind of breaking the fourth wall out there, just this little mental exercise that didn't have as much to do with the plot. I thought it was really interesting, though. This one, it kind of reminds me of, like, something that would happen in a Stephen King book. Yeah. Yeah, where where it's just kind of out there and really interesting yeah anyway i, I, I don't think like i hated it. it as much as you did but i, I didn't was, like it 
<laughs> one out of ten. <laughs> zero. Zero out of ten. What was the? It, it should have. It should not have been included. Come on. I thought like, oh, this is kind of similar to the whole question of can you create an AI, like a fully fledged, like sentient, um, self-aware AI, or does it all just have to be programmed? And this like creating this mental character, is it really someone you can talk with or are you just making it up the whole time? I thought there's going to be like some connection there. Is it sentient or sentient? I think both are allowed. Mainly I like, because I say sentient. <laughs> I like sentient. It's a little more snappy. I don't know. I like sentient. Um, right. um, Tweet at us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell us. Tell us how to pronounce that word. Um, the last. The last part I want to talk about before you guys move on to death's end is so the the book starts off and ends with um, the cosmic sociology that Ye Wen Ji kind of explains to Luo Ji. Um, before he was important at all, but it was, it seemed like the reason he was picked to be a wall facer was his knowledge of it or his connection with her, um, which was, so the first axiom, uh, survival is the primary need of civilization. The second civilization continuously grows and expands yet the total matter in the universe remains constant, which basically means you need to expand to keep sustaining, but survival is the most important thing. So if you come across somebody else, you know, then you get the dark force ideology of it's best just to eliminate them if you can. So why do you think she, like, why was she the one who explained it to him? Was she like intentionally trying to teach him something to help stop the Trisolarians? Like what was her goal in that? And if it was completely random, why not just write the book in in a situation where Luo Ji came up with the axioms himself as part of his like research life as a student, you know, what do you guys think? Well, I think those are real axioms, aren't they? I think, I think the cosmic sociology is, I mean, they're, they're truths, but like the cosmic sociology was something he was coming up with on his own. Cause he like published it in book. Did he? I thought that the dark forest um, was an actual philosophy that had come up that was developed before this book came out. Dark forest is, but the cosmic sociology with those two axioms wasn't dark oh. force was just the idea of um, like maybe the reason for the Fermi paradox is because every time a civilization comes in contact with another one, it's eliminated. For those of you that aren't uh, complete learned, the Fermi paradox says that, um, that if there was other life in other planets, then we would have already made contact with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We should have like, there should be so much out there that we should have come across some, some evidence yeah. of it. The, the probability of not coming across life in the universe being the size of the universe, what it is, is so small that, the, you know, something. There's there another be, factor there. There must be some reason yeah. why we haven't seen any life yet. And, and the dark forest is a reason for the Fermi paradox, right? Yeah. It's yeah. That's a, a, a positive explanation. <laughs> Um, yeah. Anyway, Jake, to answer your your question though, why was it uh, Ye Wenji, and w- was she like testing him or something? Yeah, um, like was she testing him, or what was she like feeling regret for the whole ETO movement and her her whole right? Like, it's her responsibility that the Earth is ending, kind of thing, or and I, I guess do we assume then that she had the dark forest deterrence thing already figured out? And yeah, I don't know. Like, hey, here's an idea: if you solve my puzzle, the Earth can survive. I don't know. Yeah, it was, I mean, it seems like such a big thing because it starts off with her 
at her, I think at her daughter's grave talking to him. And then the book ends with him at her grave. And that's when he activates his whole um, deterrence thing. Mm-hmm. So I just, I'm just wondering there, like, I, I feel like that's probably it was intentional, but why not do it herself? I don't know. It's like, is she giving humanity one last chance to prove that they're one of the themes in the series is, is love. And you see that a lot in the third book, actually, like um, humanity making decisions based off of love and what is the power of love in the universe. And so was she saying like, Hey, I've given up on humanity, but maybe we'll give you one more chance to prove that, um, you know, you're not all as despicable as you seem. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Josh? I don't know. I, I think that it might've, she might've been trying to have an explanation for her acts, you know, cause she basically doomed all yeah. humanity. And so she might've been trying to offer up some sort of explanation of saying, look, we both can't survive this, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that humanity is this bad, so they can't be as bad as we are. Yeah. Uh, I just thought I, that just was kind of a question it left me with. And it wasn't one that I was like, this is a, a hole or plot hole or anything like that. But it was, it was just kind of a thought provoking end. And I really like how the book starts and ends with that. I thought that was kind of a, almost poetic in the way that the plot is structured. Cool. Okay. Any more for us? Um, I, I think that's, that's it for me. So I, I'll sign off and let you guys move on to death send. Okay. Do you need to plug anything before you sign off? Are you good? Um, I'd plug bookshelf. bookshelf great, yeah. Yeah. You should always plug bookshelf. Yeah. Bookshelf. It's uh, the great app for audiobook streaming for free with ads. So be on the lookout for it. That's currently, right. That's right. currently in, uh, in alpha. I don't, I don't know. In, what in development. Those, yeah. I don't know before what those words any, Before any Greek letters come into play. <laughs> Currently before the Greek letters. All right. <laughs> Venetian alphabet only. <laughs> All right. See you guys. All right. See you, Jake. Thanks, Jake. Okay, man, we've gone, uh, we, we've gone long here. We hit those first two books really hard. Um, I yeah. think we can, we can probably wrap up this, this third book pretty quickly. Um, I'll read through my summary and then we can both just hit on a few points and, and, and wrap up and maybe give a final word on the whole series. So the peace between, as, as Death End starts, the peace between Earth and Trisolaris does not last long. Chung Jin, I believe is how you say your name, a young scientist, is elected to be the sword, the sword holder, which is the individual responsible for holding the key to the mutually assured destruction deterrent system that Luolji developed. As soon as she becomes the, the sword holder, Trisolaris immediately attacks, having deemed Cheng Jin to not be a threat of activating the deterrent system. She indeed does not, and it seems that Trisolaris has won. They begin to prepare the Earth for colonization, requiring all humans to move to Australia or Mars. Uh, just when it seems that humanity will be completely conquered, one of these surviving ships from the Doomsday Battle of the previous book activates its deterrent system broadcasting the location of the Trisolarian planet to the universe and then exposing it to dark forest attacks. Now, as an extent, the Earth would also be exposed to, to dark forest attacks because of the uh, contact between Earth and Trisolarian. The Trisolarians uh, immediately leave Earth, which has avoided its immediate problem, but must come up with a way to avoid dark forest destruction in the immediate future. They develop several plans, but eventually choose to establish bunkers in the shelter of Jupiter which would be able to survive even if their sun was destroyed. 
However, they don't anticipate an attack of an entirely different nature. That attack comes from a, domen a dimensional bomb that decreases the dimensionality, dimension, dimensionality, that's a tough word, of the solar system to two dimensions, completely destroying everything except for Changjin and her random friend. They escape, do some uninteresting and confusing things, in my opinion, and eventually arrive at the end of time, expecting the universe to be born again. So um, as you can tell from my review, I really liked like 90% of the book and then the last 10%, I, yeah, I couldn't really visualize it as much. It got a little too meta for me. Uh, how was it for you, Josh? Yeah, it was, I think the third book was my favorite, um, partially okay. because it was much more character focused. Um, and I thought that it provided a lot more closure. <laughs> well, in some ways, I mean, you you kind of get to the fate of the universe and that's kind of left hanging in the balance if there is enough matter left. Right. I mean, we assume that going. there there is. So at the very end, they, they had this weird, like, civilizations to, were to the point where they could develop their own mini universes. And so Shengjin, and she picked up some... A uh, new random boyfriend type guy from uh, one of the surviving ships because Earth and the solar system had been destroyed. Anyway, those two entered this mini universe. Well, wasn't it? Wasn't it? What's his face that had been? His brain had been sent off in the second book. No, 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 no. That no? was the disappointing thing. So you're thinking of Young Tian, Young Tian Ming, who? Yeah. So his brain got sent off in the third book as part of the oh. um, the elevator or the staircase program. So they yeah, sent yeah. him off to the, the Trisolarans and he provided them with the, the fairy tales that they ultimately yeah, right, interpreted right, right. to understand some of the scientific principles of the universe um, and, and lightspeed travel and such. So he was significant there, but then you thought that he was going to do something towards the end after the solar system had been destroyed. Um, now he provided them with the mini universe, but because of uh, basically an interstellar type in the movie Interstellar, um, you know, when they go down to the the planet and they come back and 50 years has passed and they're like, holy cow, we're and not. He had just barely this. missed. Yeah, he had just barely missed them. Yeah. So something similar happened, but like 13 million years pass. And so young Tian Ming is, is way dead now because he was down on the planet. Yeah. Um, that's and right, and that's so right. uh, our, our main girl, um, Chung Jin, is there with this new guy that she picked up. And I, it was like this whole separate plot happened after 90% through the book. And it just didn't have enough time to really to, to make any dent for me. And things were happening so fast and got so meta so quickly that I, I didn't enjoy the end of the book. I thought it was too much too fast. So th this is another thing where it kind of feels like a collection of short stories, you know, um, where it, f it feels like there's another short story that was just tacked on the ending of the, yeah. the book almost. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the destruction of the universe was, that was crazy. Or the solar system. Yeah. Was, so the sol crazy so. Part. That was amazing. Just going to get the perspective of some almost like accountant type figure, right? That was just like, oh, I see a little speck over here. Let me just flick out a little <laughs> dimensional bomb that will completely destroy a whole solar system or multiple yeah. solar systems. Yeah, yeah the, the the alien accountant guy. Yeah, yeah. So that was a really cool perspective. Um, I thought, again, it went to show the fact that humanity was so egotistical and arrogant that they thought that they had come up with the solution to being uh, demolished by hiding behind Jupiter, was it? 
Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, oh, we've observed the the dark forest destruction in yeah. two other worlds. Because because our, our two different points of data that we have. Yeah. We we're we're now superior in our I mean to be how. fair, what else could they have done, right? Like there's no way right. they could Yeah. No. I mean, I guess they had some data on this fourth dimensional thing that happened with uh, blue space and gravity, the two ships that survived the destruction, but there's no way they could have put that together to know how to survive. Like realistically, they never had a chance. No, and it was the same type thing with the Trisolarian invasion. Is it kind of, it makes you think about how in the end, there are probably forces in the universe that could completely take us out. And in some ways, uh, despite how amazing humanity and civilization is, we might not be m- more important than insects are. You know, that's kind of a theme of the book. And um, that doesn't take away from the greatness that is humanity, but it also helps contextualize where our standing might be in the universe. So Chung Jin had a chance, we, we think, to maybe save humanity if she had approved the light speed travel initiative that her frenemy wade was developing Um, but she ultimately chose not to because at the time there was eminent potential for pursuing that there was very there's a lot of danger around light speed travel because they thought it would expose their location in the universe which it would have but they could have developed it in a different way but she ultimately said no we're not going to do this because doing it would provoke a war Um, so that was interesting because it kind of gets at this theme of, of love and the power of love in human um, civilization to, uh, I, I don't know, to, to avoid um, death. I, I don't know. I, I struggled with this because it seemed like he was trying to say that, that love is all powerful, but then also, hey, if you go with your gut and try to save people's lives, ultimately we're all going to get destroyed. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of it was that there's a lot of times when you're just, there's a lot of utility involved with it and we need to make the best of what we have with the time that we have, you know? And I think that was her point is this might save humanity, but it's going to also destroy humanity. Like what is humanity without love is kind of what I think that the thing that you're hinting at is. And if all of humanity is wiped out in this massive war, you know, then is it really worth saving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to get to. Yeah, because if everyone, think about it, like if everyone alive, would you rather have everyone alive right now uh, live out happy, peaceful, content lives, right? And then have humanity be destroyed, uh, the future? Or would you rather destroy humanity as right now with the possibility of maybe saving the species down the line? You know, it's kind of interesting and I don't know which one I'd pick. I, and I guess that's kind of what he gets at too with the whole uh, Australia resettlement thing when humanity is just uh, decaying into chaos within the space of a month or two because there's no more love left in the world and everyone's just out to save themselves. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. I thought that was a really interesting, again, almost a little short story that he put in there with what would happen if now we have these alien overlords that came colonized us do the risk strategy and put them all in Australia. And yeah, send them all back to jail in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, 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 I did enjoy that part. Um, and I thought it was interesting. Oh, who is that, that Aboriginal character that was from Australia that helped? Oh, Phrase? Kind of, yeah, he, he was cool. Helped, helped them think through some of the moral 
quandaries that they had. I imagine Frace is like old Hugh Jackman. <laughs> is that is that Wolverine's character? If if Logan had never happened, they just that's yeah, just living out in the wild. Yeah, he was cool. Okay, so I this book the end did get very meta. I I liked I really liked the fantasy part that we that you had talked about and alluded to earlier with this uh, with this long kind of fairy tale that was given it was long though right i mean did you think it, it was long it was long but it was cool i mean i i enjoyed it i i kind of thought it was uh, i don't know it kind of reminded me of reading like the canterbury ta- tales a little in bit high school i thought yeah. so one funny uh little fourth wall thing that happened so after the fairy tales have been told and they're all analyzing them they bring in like this literary expert and all they say is, wow, these are really well, wit- well written. These are amazing. These could be published. And I felt yeah. like he was just like patting himself on the back like, wow, great job. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Okay, so what, what were the points of that? There was the one, one was the concavity of the, like how to basically achieve light speed travel without drawing attention. And well, how that would also collapse. You, no, you still draw attention yourself. It was just how to do it. The curvature propul- oh. propulsion. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, it also, um, they didn't figure this out in time, but it, it, it alluded to how to uh, make the what dark domain or, or black domain, where they would slow down the speed of light inside their area and hide their planet from observation. Right. That, that, that's what I was thinking. Right. So that you're able to hide yourself by basically going dark, right? By making light not escape where you were at or move at a slower pace. Yeah, that was cool. So the sacrifices then inside of that black domain, you're basically sacrificing any chance of technological advancement or escape because there's no way to get out of it and your computers aren't going to work because light can't travel as fast. Yeah, and I thought that that was another interesting thing going back to the episode that we did about Starsight. There's not too many spoilers for that series, but part of... um, part of it is controlling space travel and that's how that's a really uh, sought after thing. And so you sacrifice yourself from being exposed to the larger. Yeah. Yeah. Light speed travel, light speed travel is dangerous, I guess is what we decided. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was cool. And then the final thing was uh, giving them a warning for becoming two dimensionalized, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that they never figured out that the whole needle eye painting thing. So needle eye in the story was the painter. And if he painted your picture, then there was no escaping from it. And so the, the picture was the two dimensional version of the three dimensional being. And that's what ultimately happened. They, they threw the dimensional bomb in there. There was no escaping. So the, the only way to really avoid that is by going dark, right? And yeah. Then, by, by spinning the umbrella above your head. Yeah. yeah which yeah. is, yeah. Which is creating the, the black domain or the, yeah, black domain is what we what we called it. How did okay. uh, how did young Tian Ming and the Trislarans even know about that? I guess they must have observed that elsewhere in the universe. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that was ever fully explained. Yeah, I, I don't think it was, but I guess we assume that they're the Trislarans. They seemed a bit smarter than us. Well, that's another reason why I like this is through most of the series, it uh, highlighted the technological differences between humanity and the Trislarans. But then in this book, it kind of showed how similar we were in the cosmic universe scale type technology is we're pretty similar in terms of where we're at technology, techno- technologically. 
maybe just separated by even a few hundred years, which is nothing in terms yeah. of yeah. the universe. Yeah, it, re- it really hit at that, you know, that we're just motes of dust in the, in the cosmos. It was one thing at the very end that was cool was um, one of the alien species sent out a broadcast to basically every civilization that had ever existed in the universe with every every, every recorded language um, saying, hey, give us your matter back or the universe is just going to rip in half and, and no one's going to survive. And they were looking and, and hoping that Earth language would be on there. And, and eventually it was. Earth and Trisolarian languages are like right next to each other. Yeah. How we were almost siblings in this cosmic scale. Yeah, and and we made a dent, yeah. right? So even though we were we were wiped out, we uh, we survived a, at least our a little bit. So yeah, I really I did enjoy how that it still came down to: Are we just going to protect ourselves by making our own little universe and eating up the matter that makes up the entire universe, or are we going to do what's better for um, the universe and give that back, even though it means our destruction? Mm. And ultimately, so yeah, that fits Chung Jin's character because ultimately she chose to give back to uh, to the universe and and make the choice that was better for the whole. Yeah, even though, it, and it was another game theory, like there's a scarce amount of resources and we can use ours and for to survive ourselves, but that means that other people might die. So, so and that was, um, well, that AI guy, uh, they were talking about, well, what if everyone does it? Like, is it going to, depend on one little proton or whatever that tips the balance between the universe surviving and and not surviving. She was like, well, I don't know, but I I know that I can do my part, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think in this conversation, I've realized that a lot of the themes, maybe I I didn't give enough credit for, and you guys have have helped me expose a little more understanding to the series. I think I like the series more after, after talking. Yeah. That's the biggest takeaway I had was that the plot was not uh seamless by any means the character work was not amazing by any means i did like the prose however i think it would have been way better if i was reading in chinese for uh in reading the translation was uh really good but it didn't blow my mind or anything um but the themes and the thoughts that it provoked were amazing for me probably more than any series that i've read in a long time and that's why I remember most from reading it almost a year ago is just the uh, moral and ethical philosophizing that I did in my own head as I was reading them. Let's, let's, uh, yeah, let's close on that note. Thank you, Josh and uh, Jake posthumously since he's no longer with us, but uh, he, he is they, still alive. He, well, still alive, but not, <laughs> not in our, not in our frame of reference in this zoom. Yeah. Not in our universe. universe. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Bring it full circle. Anyway, uh, we've started Malzahn Book of the Fallen, uh, Book One, Gardens of the Moon. So we're gonna we're gonna go through that. We're excited to take on the challenge. Um, and as we read that, we're gonna be coming out hopefully with weekly podcasts of other things. Um, I know that Ben wants to do a Words of Radiance review, so um, look for that. That'll probably be our next episode. But uh, this is Stephen and Josh signing off. See you guys later. Bye.